Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 18th chapter. Jesus said to the disciples, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The Gospel of the Lord. <clears throat> I would just like to make a quick little announcement that I forgot to ask Pastor Roger to make before church today. Uh, as a Reconciling in Christ congregation, our congregation has been attending the drag shows that are held monthly at Big Grove every second Sunday. I've had a few cancellations. I do have four available tickets. Um, that's today at noon. So if you're interested in joining, just grab me after church. Please don't text me during church. It's distracting. Some have done it. <laughs> For most of my childhood, I was left out of sports. I know, that's... A surprising revelation, my family didn't have money for extracurricular activities and with my dad raising four kids on his own, it wasn't possible really to shuffle kids here and there. I still have nightmares about gym class in school though, even the occasional one waking me up in a cold sweat. Uh, mostly where students would pick classmates to be on their team, you know, for kickball and dodgeball and etc. I was always among those last picked, decidedly an outsider. I still remember how that feels. In high school, when instructed to run a mile on the indoor track, I would regularly dip into the girls' restroom with some friends just to wait it out. During softball, I was always relegated to the outfield, where one spring day during my senior year, I laid down in the grass and fell asleep and woke up two periods late and very sunburned. In the winter, during cross-country skiing, while doing coordination drills on our backs in the snow, I got my skis entangled with the kid next to me and was sent inside to write a report about cross-country skiing. During the gymnastics unit, I was unable to do a backward somersault, so my gym teacher shamed me in front of the entire class. The same teacher I accidentally shot in the foot with an arrow during the archery unit, at which time I was sent to the library to write a report about archery. <laughs> While I saw athletics as unattainable, I can thank PE for radically improving my writing skills. 
I was grateful that PE never counted towards my GPA, even though I rocked a consistent C average in PE and graduated with a perfect 4.0. Later in college, I learned that there were students who felt the opposite. Ones who felt that sports were attainable, but that academics were impossible. I remember thinking, now is my time to smoke these idiots. As several members of the Valparaiso University basketball team took Japanese classes with me and begged me to help them cheat, and I enjoyed giving them the middle finger. I was king of the hill. Now the classroom was my turf, and y'all can go to hell if you think I'm going to compromise that for the likes of you. I felt justified in indiscriminately blaming all jocks for my failed past with sports. Go back to your football fields and your basketball courts and leave the classroom to me. I am the insider now. Bye-bye. Eventually, I learned that life is spent rotating between being an insider and an outsider, largely depending on circumstances beyond your control. While studying in Germany, <clears throat> I relished the fact that people mistook me for being a Dutch person, and I was welcomed and celebrated in academic and social circles, and I enjoyed very much being on the inside. While living in Hungary, however, I was alone in my appearance and language and was viewed suspiciously, mostly since the Iron Curtain had just fallen. I was a Westerner with fair skin and blonde hair in a sea of olive-skinned, dark-haired Hungarians. My town was convinced that my presence was a precursor to an American invasion and I was held at arm's length, albeit only by the school staff and faculty. My students loved me because I alone could teach them the lyrics to Pink Floyd and the Cure songs. Through my son's athletic participation over the last 15 years, I've experienced a lot of healing and restoration. I'm no longer intimidated by coaches because I know things they don't know. I have seen my sons grow into student athletes, and that has helped overcome the prejudicial bridge I have always held against athletes. A few years ago, I was talking to LCN student Michael Heddington and was explaining to him how I don't really know sports because I never got to participate. And he said, Pastor Sarah, I think you're wrong. Maybe you didn't get to be an athlete, but you've raised three fine athletes, so you must know something. So I wrote him a glowing letter of recommendation to IBM, which is where he works today, writing skills I gained from PE class. <laughs> what does that what have um, all of this have to do with today's readings? Well, it has to do with the vacillation between being an insider and an outsider. Today's first reading from the book of Exodus is a familiar story to many of us. It's the final plague that God sends to the Egyptian leader Pharaoh. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It is God commanding the Israelite congregation to prepare from their exodus from slavery into freedom. Kill a lamb, God says, 
and smear the blood above your door. Tonight my angel will sweep through the, sweet, the streets of Egypt where there is no blood above a door. My angel will kill the firstborn sons in that home where there is blood above the door. My angel will pass over that home and spare the lives of the firstborn who dwell within. The Israelites are insiders, but the Egyptians are the outsiders. This is an uncomfortable biblical delineation of who is godly and who is pagan, who is in and who is out. This culminates in the final exodus of the Israelite people from their Egyptian oppressors. After they safely cross the parted Red Sea, they watch the walls of the sea close in and drown the pursuing Egyptian army. The godly live, the pagan die. A few years ago, I remember Jacob asking me about this story. He said, but if God is the creator of all things and all people, isn't God also then the God of the Egyptian people? So why are the Egyptians destroyed? This story is bullshit, he said. Why well, I didn't love his language at the time. I loved his Christian realization that the God whom we worship and praise and confess is not a God of some, but a God of all. Plainly put, God doesn't pass over anyone anymore. According to the biblical narrative, long ago, God established insiders and outsiders, <clears throat> those who lived inside God's covenant and those who lived outside of it. But now, in Jesus, God is doing a new thing. Today's gospel is great. The message is wonderful. But it's also an example of Jesus' subtle and sharp humor, which we'll get to in a sec. Please note, this is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus offers instruction for how congregations are to function, and of all things, it has to do with conflict resolution. If a person wrongs you, Jesus says, go to that person and tell them that they wronged you. If that person won't listen, go back and bring some people with you so that they can be witnesses at your attempts to reconcile. And if that fails, tell the whole congregation what has happened. And if the offender still refuses to listen to you, then treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. At this, many Christians sharpen their claws and salivate at this supposed permission to alienate and judge some people because they are unrepentant or sinful. Yes, they say. Let's treat them like pagans. Drown them like the Egyptians. Destroy them as a people. Subjugate them to laws of injustice and oppression. But in this gospel, is that really what Jesus is doing? Is he actually giving permission to exclude and marginalize? The funny irony here, which you know I love, is the judgy human propensity to say, yes, I will follow all of these steps that Jesus lays out, which, let's be honest, at least Midwestern Christians never follow because we prefer to hold grudges rather than to confront a problematic situation. But nonetheless, I'll follow these steps, and if they don't work, then I have permission to be self-righteous and offended and kick the other person out of community, because Jesus said to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Ironic. 
So let's just look at how Jesus treats pagans and tax collectors. He welcomes them and heals them, goes to their homes, sits with them, talks to them, listens to them, eats with them, forgives them from the cross where he is being crucified. To the pagans and tax collectors, Jesus never demands conversion. Jesus does, in the end, command repentance to all people and asks that we go and sin no more, but that's never a condition so much as it is an emancipation. Jesus asks that all people turn from our evil ways and asks that we all do better. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean kicking out the sinners in our midst because that, dear friends, is a slippery slope. Once we begin kicking out the sinners, <clears throat> where do we end? If we asked all the sinners here today to leave now, we would have a congregation of zero. I had a distant relative. He was a Missouri Synod pastor. By the time he died, he had excommunicated so many people, he had no colleagues left to bring him communion, and so he died uncommuned. This is not where Jesus is going with this passage. Jesus does not destroy community. Jesus creates community even with pagans and tax collectors. On the cross, Jesus asks his Father to forgive the very ones who crucify him, and he does it without condition. Indeed, he knows that they are pagan enemies, forgives them nonetheless. To the criminal crucified next to him, Jesus didn't say, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise as long as you are baptized and confirmed. He simply says, whoever you are, <clears throat> whatever you've done today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus brings these pagan soldiers and these criminal outsiders into his kingdom. This means when we get to the point where we want to judge someone or kick them out of community, our job is instead to welcome and love. And this is difficult. One time when a former congregation I had worked with in Illinois was holding meetings in order to determine whether or not it was right to marry people of the same gender, a young woman marched up to the microphone, her confirmation Bible tucked snugly under her arm. She proceeded to tell everybody that the Bible clearly states that marriage is a sacred covenant of faithfulness between one man and one woman, period. And she stared right at me. Funny thing is, just a few days before that, she had confessed to me that she had been unfaithful to her husband while he was deployed on active duty, and she stared at me smugly, and I remember the smoldering temptation to call her out, to say, you know what, she's lying. She's a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, and I'm calling you out. Being a sinful person, I imagined this, and I relished it, and I wanted to do it. In the end, I said nothing, because she had told me that in confidence. Sometimes I regret that. Yet, she came to church every week after that, and while I did not like her, and she did not like me, she received grace through Holy Communion. It was balm to know that if she did not hear grace from my words, then she received grace in the sacrament of Holy Communion, where the words are not mine, but are instead the words of Jesus. 
while she and I both wanted to point at each other in accusation and judgment and self-righteousness, Christ drew us into community and made us both insiders, even against our stubborn wills and despite our sinful ways. For many Christians, it's a tough pill to swallow to realize we don't have the freedom to judge or exclude or alienate or marginalize or oppress. Some Christians ignore the reality that there's no longer Greek or Jew, woman or man, slave or free, that all are insiders, that God doesn't pass over people anymore. John the Baptist proclaims this when he announces, Here is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at that moment, Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb who takes the place of the many individual lambs sacrificed. Jesus doesn't distinguish between homes with blood smeared over their doors versus doors with no blood. Indeed, Jesus, the Lamb of God, pours out his blood on all people, on all doors on all homes, on all nations, on all religions, on all ethnicities, on all orientations and races and identities, on all pagans and tax collectors, on all criminals, on all cheaters and schemers and addicts and doubters and cynics and mockers. Jesus dies the one death that swallows up all death in victory. Contrary to popular interpretation, then, this is not a gospel of exclusion, but one of inclusion. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This doesn't mean that Jesus is only there where two or three are gathered and nowhere else. It doesn't mean that Jesus is only in my church where two or three are gathered and not yours. And he is only in my denomination or in my faith. So maybe... It's past time for the church universal to relinquish its bragging of ownership rights when it comes to the grace of God. No one person or church or faith owns God, so no one person, church or faith gets to conditionalize God. Proclaiming true grace is an uncomfortable thing because it means loving the ones whom the church has systematically and historically overlooked and harmed and left out, the pagans and the tax collectors of our time. But in the end, if we're truthful, we're all pagans and tax collectors, ones who deserve to be judged and run out into utter darkness and solitude, we all deserve to be on the outside, the last one picked, shamed, and humiliated. Instead, Jesus meets us there in our most vulnerable times where there is utter darkness and loneliness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, and says, My blood has saved you and washed you clean. Do not stand on the outside where it is cold, come inside where it is warm. Amen.